My cousin died when I was in sixth grade. Um, I've told many of you this testimony before. Um, and me going to his funeral rocked my life, right? I really do feel like I still very much remember the day, may I say the hour, where I grew up and I no longer thought like a child but thought like an adult. Um, just because I had an experienced trauma in a way that I knew made me different. And as people were giving their lives to Jesus that night at my um, cousin's funeral, me as a sixth grader um, said, nay, I will no longer believe in you, God, and spent the next two years of my life um, pretending to be the Christian kid, uh, but secretly hating a God I did not believe in, and actually actively going to youth group and to youth group trips and trying to deconvert kids on uh, during my time there. Um, that was my existence as a 6th, 7th, and early 8th grader um, because, again, I hated a God I did not believe in. We moved to the Carolinas March 1st, 1999. It snowed the following week that I was there. It was a light snow for the year. Freaked me out. Being from Florida, I had only seen snow once in my life. And at that point, we almost had driven off a mountain on that trip. True story. Um, Van got stuck in a snow bank. I don't know what you call them. I'm from Florida. Um, in the process. Um, so it was a whirlwind of an adventure. We started attending a church. I started attending a youth group because I liked the people because they actually um, wanted to get to know me, which was weird because I didn't look like them for sure. And I definitely didn't sound like them, y'all, for sure. Um, and so this boy with Hawaiian shirts, shell necklaces, spiked hair, um, was suddenly fitting in with the kids with overalls and plaid, um, which is how half y'all still dress in the South. Um, and so I was in this youth group setting, did not believe any of it, but I liked the people. And our youth pastor, or youth director at the time, Jake Tassie, um, I don't know if it was foolishly or providentially, asked me to join Eighth grade leadership. So eighth grade leadership ran the whole middle school ministry. Now, this was a middle school ministry of about 200 kids on the roster. It's a huge program, right? So I was like, sure. I liked being in charge. I was a control freak. So you gave me a little bit of power. Heck, I'm going to run with it. So I started showing up at these meetings. I don't even know what they were called. Um, I should know, right? Um, and we started going through this book, Living Loud, How to Defend your faith. Um, and me as an unbeliever went, <clears throat> like chuckled, right? Like I'm there and I'm playing the role of a good old boy until I became an actor, right? I was pretending to be a good kid, um, a Christian. Um, and we started to go through this. And you're welcome to look through it. If uh, you look through this, I went through three or four different color highlighters because there are pages in this that are literally, the whole page is marked. And it's now faded. This book is 15 years old. I mean, there's that page, right? It's all marked, right? I devoured apologetics because this book and somebody, namely Jake, explaining the finer details of it to me shook me, right? Because I hated a God I didn't believe in. 
But now, I had to deal with him. Right? It was one thing to say, I don't believe in God. And it's another thing to be like, it's another thing to come to the realization that actually it looks like, it seems not only probable, but very, very likely that there is a God. And then it seems from the evidence that there really was a guy named Jesus. He wasn't just a mass hallucination that performed miracles, called himself the Son of God, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. And I was suddenly going to have to deal with that. So the testimony point for me when it comes to apologetics is apologetics opened up Christianity as a real possibility. And as I've done, when I was in seminary, I used to run apologetics conferences up and down the East Coast with our seminary. And I've met hundreds of people at this point who had the exact same testimony I did, where someone was gracious enough to share with them Christian answers. And then the gospel not only became possible, but it became a reality. This is why I love apologetics, because it is very much my testimony. For you, I hope it grounds you in confidence that our worldview is not some, like, blind faith, right? Which is what atheists will accuse us of. And it also is such a sound faith that it gives you a clear way, way to navigate life, something I think every other worldview is missing. So what is apologetics? What's apologetics? We aren't apologizing for anything. Okay? Apologetics classical definition is to defend the faith. But I think apologetics goes way past that. Way past the defense of the Christian faith. If you play sports, you can finish this fill in the blank for me. Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. That's right. And this is true with the Christian faith. So I think a better definition is this. Apologetics is the distinct subject of study that concerns the application of the knowledge, the application of knowledge to demonstrate that Christianity is true. It is simply applying truth to demonstrate truth. That's what we're doing. So... And one of the ways you demonstrate something that is true is to compare it to something that is false, right? When you are trained to work for the Federal Reserve, you look and hold the real dollar bill, right? I use a credit card, so I don't have one to show you, but they exist, okay? And you get to know its intricacies. You get to know what makes a dollar bill a dollar bill. You get to know, you know, quickly... um, what the counterfeits are, what the flaws are, because you look at the real thing. But further, as you look at both the real dollar bill and the counterfeits, by looking at the counterfeits, it helps you know the real one at the same time. Because you get to notice, oh, well, his face on the counterfeit bills does not have a shadow. Well, on the real ones, it does have a shadow. 
On the fake ones, it doesn't have a letter before the number. On the real ones, it always has a letter before the number. By examining the counterfeits, we can know the truth one, the true one, better. And it's the same way with apologetics. Um, we will be looking, while we're here, at the hard questions that you are asked about Christianity this year. And we will be answering those questions. But it won't end there, because we will see if other worldviews, we will see if other worldviews can answer the questions too. You see, Christianity is not the only one that has to account for an accurate view of reality. And I want to train you on how to put a stone in someone's shoe, especially if they are hostile. How do you help someone think? Let's be real. For Christianity, and you need to know this, there aren't new arguments against Christianity. Our faith is 2,000 years old. If you read the church fathers, the exact same arguments that were made to them are made to us, including in the realm of, like, science. Materialism has been around since the Greeks because they thought everything was just matter, right? So... Um, apologetics does help us give a defense for our faith. I will say that as we're commanded to do so. First Peter 315 says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect and respect. But apologetics goes on the attack rather quickly too. second Corinthians 10, five we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. An example you can example you can use. It's been said to me by several non-believing friends. I can't believe in a God that allows so much evil. And it's very easy as a Christian to suddenly go on the defensive when we are asked or told that statement, right? So what do you do with that? You could go into a long defense on why you believe evil exists, or you could parry the blow and use it against your opponent. A great response to that question is as follows. So you believe in evil? Where does evil come from? If we are nothing more than matter in motion, how can there be something real called evil? That is non-material. If we are nothing more than evolved apes, why is murder, rape, stealing, male patriarchy all wrong when it is all the things that every other higher animal on the planet engages in? Christianity can account for evil. Man chose evil so he could be free to do what he wanted. There is evil because we live in a fallen world. That's why we all do evil things, even though we know them to be morally wrong. That's why we know that all things should be better. Christianity can't account for evil. If you don't believe that anything exists that isn't material, can you account for evil? And it's parrying the blow and making them answer the hard questions. We have an answer. You just might not like it. But we're the only ones that are consistent. Apologetics will help you take the questions that are brought up against Christianity, answer them, and then help you bring the questions to your opponent. When you answer the question, you swallow the red pill. When you run away from the answer, the blue one. We want to live in reality, and we believe we do. We believe Christianity sees the world the most clearly, 
and it should give us much confidence. We see this confidence with Paul in Acts 17. If you have a Bible on you, turn to Acts 17. We'll be in verse 16. So there's Bibles all around. You can bring your Bibles. Even though we're doing apologetics this year, we'll be in a Bible passage every week. There's always a link. Acts 17. I've got one. Sarah Ann doesn't need one. She knows this one by heart. It's Christian school. It's not fair. They memorized the Bible. Acts 17. All of it. They leave a legacy. I'm sorry. It's in for the year. It's done. I'll never say it again. Acts 17, Acts is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts, fifth book, verse verse 16. Paul and Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of a foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I want you to notice a few things. First, Paul makes a move. Paul makes a move. Paul doesn't live a good Christian life waiting for someone to say, your life is different. Tell me why. He doesn't. Paul makes the first move. He sees the idols of the world and what the world is falling for, and he brings up the topics with others. You can learn how to do this too. And actually this year, you're going to learn how to do this. You can bring up idols with your friends to deal with too. Why do we live with all this pressure to succeed? Why do we feel like we need to post about everything we do? Why do we feel like we have to be connected all the time? What is it within us that longs for that? Why are we scared of silence? Why do we feel the need to have approval of others who we really don't care about? When was the last time you had deep conversations like these with your friends? When was the last time you had deep conversations like these with your friends? Or about the idols everyone worships, but no one talks about? The fact is, I think most people are uncomfortable about bringing up these subjects. Because they'd rather live with the blue pill than deal with the reality of the red one. So we, if we're going to be chain breakers, truth seekers got to learn how to ask these questions. Second thing I want you to notice is the people are immediately against him. They call him a babbler. Name calling is what marks someone who hears the gospel for the first time. Why? Because Romans 1 tells us they are prone to not like the message. The Bible tells us. We're going to be called names. 
But they like new things. Athenians want to be modern, progressive even in their ideas. Because old ideas are bad and new ideas are good. It's a logical fallacy we'll define later. And that thinking has literally been around forever. Anytime one of your friends say, well, that's an old way of thinking. Or make sure you're on the right side of history. That's the most modern way to put it, right? Like, can't think about the old ways. You've got to do it the new way. This has been around since Athens, people. Okay? But how does God use Paul when people are calling him names and belittling his thinking? Watch what happens. We're in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor um, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should see God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine beings is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man, the time of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when he, they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But when men joined him and believed him, among whom also were Dionysus and Aeropagite, and the woman named Demarius, and others with them. So how does God use Paul? How does God use Paul? Two ways. To cause some to mock. And to cause some to consider Christ. To cause some to mock and cause them to consider Christ. Look, as someone who God used apologetics to bring close to faith, I can say this with absolute certainty. And not just from personal experience, also from what we know from the Bible. Apologetics will not save anyone. Just one. Even with a presenter as elegant as Paul. This is one of the most beautiful kind of apologetics he lays forth at the beginning. The Holy Spirit does the saving. But apologetics is a vehicle God used to show people the light and continues to use to this day. Paul takes their idols and turns them on their heads and then shows them who they should be worshiping. Paul holds up the counterfeit dollar bills and then shows them the real one. But for many... They're so used to monopoly money, they don't know the real, what the real thing would look like. But this year, you will learn how to defend your faith. You will learn how to engage in meaningful conversation with friends and family and complete strangers. You will grow in confidence. And my hope is that at the end of this year, my hope 
is that almost all your intellectual questions surrounding Christianity are answered so that your faith is not blind. My hope is at the end of the year you walk away with so much confidence you don't have any new questions. And you also know where to go when you do. Walking by faith and not by sight is talking about trusting God with the unknown of tomorrow. It does not mean walking in willful ignorance. Your faith is more than just a blindfold. When they talk about that, just to be clear about that, when they talk about you know, faith moving for tomorrow, yes, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That doesn't mean your foundation of your faith is blind. The future of your faith is. You do not know where God will lead you. Paul knew God because he had met Christ. Have you? Will you know him confidently this year? We'll talk about this more in small groups.